All right, go ahead and grab a seat and grab a Bible. Um, meet me over in Acts chapter 4. So we took a bit of a hiatus from the book of Acts, uh, but for the remainder of this year, pretty much, we are going to be studying chapter by chapter the book of Acts. So Acts chapter 4, all right? Meet me over there. Hey, earlier this year, I had the opportunity, the privilege, really, to get invited to, to preach at a church in New York City. And um, one of the things we started doing as, as I get these opportunities um, is try to figure out how we can bring one of our kids along with us. So this year, it was I think it was October 29th, and my daughter was born on October 31st. So we just decided to, to make this a birthday trip for her. And, and we didn't tell her where she was going until she woke up that morning to go on the trip. And her birthday present was a suitcase. So she woke up, grabbed her birthday present. We went to the airport. And, and I'm telling you, we had the New York experience. Now, let, let me just tell you, if you've never done this, just side note, you should get one-on-one -on -one time with your kids. Uh, I, I'm embarrassed to say this, but I think I learned more about my daughter on that trip than I had in the last eight years of her life because she's always spending time with all of her other siblings, and we don't get a lot of concentrated time with her. So it was incredible, and you should do it. Well, anyway, we, we did it all, right? We went and did everything. Uh, we went ice skating at Rockefeller Center. Uh, she rode the carousel in Central Park. Uh, we went to Coney Island. She had a hot dog, right? We got mugged by a subway rat. Uh, and the, the entire New York experience happened on that trip. Well, my, my eight-year-old daughter, Addison, <clears throat> she's super artsy. Uh, and all she wanted to do was go to the Met. And so one day uh, we took her to the Met and that day was awesome, okay? I, I'm not super artsy. I'm trying to get there. But on that day, they had a Vincent Van Gogh display up and they had my favorite painting ever there. They had Starry Night. Now, one of the things I love about Starry Night, if you didn't know this, is the yellow is meant to represent God's glory in creation. So you see God's glory everywhere. If you look at the picture, you see it in the sky because Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. And, and, and you see this, you see this everywhere. Last night, we had a fire that we did in the backyard and we did s'mores and one of my kids looks up and he's like, I see the stars. And they're asking questions like, how did God make the stars? And, and, and it's impossible to look up. I don't know about you, this morning, if you woke up early enough, on my drive into the church, the sky was just red. And it was absolutely incredible. Honestly, I was pulling out of Espresso's coffee and I was like, wow, God, you're incredible. Well, you also, you see it in the houses. If you look, you see the yellow painted into the houses because, well, God's glory is everywhere and it's inside of all these people. Like image bearers everywhere has, has this beautiful imagery of God's glory. And when you interact with God's people, you see God's glory. Now, if you're, if you're really particularly looking at the picture, there's one place that is not. It's not in the church. See, Van Gogh's point was you can find God everywhere except for the one place he should be. And that's the church. Y'all, that, that might ring true today. If you actually look at what people say, church, there's more of a distrust in church today than ever before. And the institution of the church is taking a massive hit among people. I told you this the, a couple weeks ago, but according to Barna Research and Pew Research, 84% of Americans post-pandemic say that they're spiritually interested, but for the first time in American history, they're not spiritually interested only in Christianity. Matter of fact, they'll tell you that they think that God, like Gandhi, would say, they, they, they say, I love you, Jesus. I just don't love your Christians. That, I, that to me is really difficult. Let me tell you four places that I think that you see in modern times that the light has gone out in the church. 
Number one, and I put this one first because it hurts my heart, but I'm going to just tell you it's leadership and moral failures. Um, y'all, that, that just breaks my heart. But it's true. There's been too many leaders who have done bad things that have created an institutional distrust in the church. Number two is the way that we act on social media. Sometimes I think that you don't realize or I don't realize that there's a watching world out there trying to figure out what we say to one another and we get these little bickering fights that go on on social media and everybody's looking at us like, dude, if you guys can't get along, like what are we doing? Number three, number three is this, is when we care more about the person who's in the Oval Office than we do about people getting to heaven. You know what I'm talking about? That church that is all political activism. You, you don't need to do that. Here's number four. Number four is when the church, when church people fight over stupid things. Now, I don't want to beat up on the church. Let me just be clear. I'm the biggest fan of the church. The church has made the biggest difference in my life. Like I go all in with the church. Okay, I, I'm not going to do that today. If you're looking for some zinger about how bad the church is, you're not going to get it here. And, and some of you might be thinking, you know what? That's, that's the point. You guys are like a bunch of hypocrites. Yep, we are. Matter of fact, I'm the chief among them, and you should join us. Because we all are. Here, here's the deal. There are no perfect churches, and there are no perfect people. There was one perfect person, and he died 2,000 years ago and rose from the dead. What there are is a bunch of beautiful, messy people doing beautiful, messy life together, becoming more like him, growing up into Christ. If you actually go back and you study the book of Acts, and you, it didn't start with an institution called the church. What it did is it started with a movement around a message, and that movement radically changed the world. Like, I'm convinced that that sacrificial movement is what built the church and it's what gave it purpose as they experienced the gospel. And through this message and movement, they found purpose and it was deeply meaningful. That's what people need. They need something that is deeply meaningful. Here's the last thing I want to say about that. If you've been hurt by the church, and that's probably all of you, then I'm sorry. I really am. But let me just tell you, that even though church people tend to hurt people, it doesn't make the message of Christianity any less true. And it doesn't make the church any less beautiful. So Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, I want to show you God's intention for the church. And here's what you need to know, is if you'll embrace what you're about to hear and make it your life, it will be deeply meaningful and the church will be powerful. What you're going to see is that a spirit-filled, powerful, impactful church that changes the world does four things. It's going to be a pretty straightforward outline today. Here's what they do. They pray bold prayers, they speak bold truth, they live in community, and they give generously. Those four things are the most powerful force in the world because they fulfill the great commandments to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love one another as yourself. So it's been a while since we've done the book of Acts, so let me just do a quick recap to set the table for you. Okay, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus, he tells the apostles to go back to Jerusalem and he wait, tell them to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. If you remember that Jesus has been crucified, he rose from the dead, they're in, uh, they're in Jerusalem, he says, hey, I want you to go back and I want you to wait, and as you wait, I'm going to pour out my spirit on you, and then you're going to change the world. Well, God does that. He pours out his spirit on his people, and they literally change the world. Now, here's what's fascinating about that, is Jesus told the disciples, it is better that I go away so that the Spirit of God can come inside of you. 
Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying it is better that you have a God inside of you than a Jesus beside you. Let me just ask you, do you believe that? Do you believe that billions of spirit-filled Christians that literally embody the message of the gospel, that are temples of the Holy Spirit, living out the gospel together is better than if Jesus were standing right here with you today? If you don't, I'm going to tell you, you don't understand the power that you have within you. So what does he do? He tells them to go, what is, and then he fills them with the Spirit. And, and as he does, they literally start speaking actual languages to people who have gathered for the Passover in Jerusalem from all over the known world. I've told you this before. If you actually go back to the book of Jeremiah in 586 BC, whenever the nation of Israel is conquered by Babylon, they're spread out all over the world. And he tell, God tells the prophet Habakkuk that he says, listen, if I even told you what I'm doing right now, you wouldn't be able to believe me. Well, what was he doing? 400 years prior to Jesus coming to this earth. He was spreading his people all over the world so that in Acts chapter 2, as they gathered again for the Passover, they would come back and you would have little church planting cells all over the world. 400 years before, before Jesus ever set foot on earth, God was like, I've got a plan to take the gospel to the nations. Here's my point is don't ever give up on what God's doing, even if you can't see it. So they speak the gospel in all these different languages, and these people are like, dude, what is going on? They must be drunk. Well, Peter's defense was, listen, it's only noon. Obviously, we're not drunk. And he tells them, he's like, what you get is the gospel. And as the gospel continues to flourish and spread, they live in this radical community in Acts chapter 4, where they're seeing people's lives change, families are restored, people are healed, and the gospel is spreading like wildfire. Thousands upon thousands of people are coming to faith. Well, the religious leaders at that time, they don't know what to do with this. There's a tension going on. They thought that they had killed Jesus and they got rid of the problem, but they didn't. They sparked the greatest church planting movement in the history of the world. And Peter and John are walking by one day and they see a paralyzed man. They heal this guy. The religious leaders are, are crazy mad about it. They bring them in. They question them about what's going on. And, and here's how they responded, which is crazy. The, the, the religious leaders who killed Jesus, by the way, are looking at Peter and John and they're like, hey, you guys have to stop doing this. Peter looks back at him. And he's like, listen, bro, I don't know what you got to do, but I know what I got to do. And if I had to choose between following you or following Jesus, I'm going with Jesus. So you go kick rocks. Think about how bold that is. These guys have the authority and the power to kill them. And yet, because Jesus had had, a, or I'm sorry, because Peter had an experience with the risen Christ, he's like, "What? Really? It's like the dude rose from the dead. He has told me what he's going to do. He's fulfilled all of it. And you think I'm not going to go with him? Do you realize that once you've had an experience with Jesus, nothing else matters?" It, it, this is what he tells you. He says that they're. There is no fear in life because perfect love drives out fear. He doesn't give you a spirit of fear, but a power and sound mind. Now, that doesn't mean you're not going to be, you're, you're not going to have these moments in time where you're going to be afraid of things, but you're, you're not fearful. And those are two different things. Peter and John, they experience perfect love in the flesh. And they're like, you do what you got to do, bro. I'm going to keep following him. Well, they get released because the religious leaders, they don't know what to do. There's a mob that's rising. People are coming to faith out of nowhere. And they go back to their friends who, who were for sure that they were going to be dead, and they're not, and they're praising God. And here's where we pick up the story in Acts chapter 4, verse 23. 
When they, when Peter and John were released, they went to their friends and they reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices, they pray, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything that's in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were together against the Lord and against his anointed. When they got released from jail, you see what they did? They went and started a worship service and they pray. And and as they're praying, by the way, if you didn't know this, this is the very first recorded prayer in the early church. You're going to see some significant things that they do in this prayer. And it's a super helpful model for how we should pray. Now, before, we, before I show you how they prayed, let's talk about how we pray for a second. Here, let me give you a couple ways that we tend to pray. We tend to pray for ourselves, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's good to pray for yourself. But if that's all you pray for, there might be a problem, right? If you're only praying for, I've, I've asked you this before, in a moment of vulnerability, if God were to answer every single prayer that you prayed over the last week, would anybody's lives be different but yours? See, When you pray like that, you tend to use God as a means to an end. Imagine this. Imagine your kids. Imagine if your kids only ever talked to you when they needed something. That would get old and tiring, wouldn't it? At some point, you'd be like, dude, do you even like me? Or am I just a means to an end? Some of you are like, I don't need to imagine that. That happened this morning. I want my kids to ask me for anything. Remember, it shows some intimacy in our relationship. But I want them to desire being with me more than wanting something from me. And I think that that's the point of prayer. Here's number two. Number two, we pray for our food. I think the most common way that we pray is for our food. We pray around meals, right? If you're Catholic and you can recite this, the prayer, the prayer standard, bless us, O Lord, for these thy gifts, which, you, which we are about to receive from thy bounty, through Christ our Lord, Amen. Some of you are like, you Southern Baptists, what do we do? What do you do? Bless this food to the nourishment of our bodies. And sometimes I think God's up in heaven being like, bro, I can't bless that food. Like, you want me to bless your biggie size double cheeseburger? And like, he's like, I already pre-blessed that Christian chicken down the street. If you would just go to Chick-fil-A, handle it there, you'd be good. If you're like me, my family, it was like good food, good, good meat, good God, let's eat. Y'all, when I go home for the holidays, every single time, we, we have this big family gathering, okay, like all the family, the extended family, like, like the crazy uncles and all. And we're gathering around, we're always around a meal, and every single time, inevitably, it comes up, well, Pastor Billy's here, maybe he should bless the food. I'm like, really? Y'all hadn't knocked down the doors of a church ever. And you know you don't pray, but we pray for our food. That's what you do. The other thing we pray for is travel mercies. Now, I don't know what travel mercies are. So if you know what they are, let me know, because I have no clue what a travel mercy is. But that's what we pray for. We pray for our health. That's good. So we tend to pray for ourselves. We pray for our health. We pray for our food. We pray for our travels. Like, we do these ritualistic prayers. Now, watch how they prayed. Number one, they recalled God's sovereignty. 
Look at it. Sovereign Lord who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything that's in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. Instead of asking for anything, they started off with an acknowledgement of who they're praying to. They, they acknowledge the truth of Scripture. The one who spoke the stars in the sky, the one who painted the, the sky red this morning, the one who put the galaxies in the air and breathed life into you, that's the one we're speaking to. Like, do you get that? The same exact power that rose Jesus from the dead lives inside of you. The God who stands outside of time, knows every hair on your head, knew you in your mother's womb. That's who you're talking to? Imagine if you started off by acknowledging that. Like, God, I recognize who you are. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to him? That everything that he does is planned and purposed. He knows all things, like Colossians says, he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now listen, when you understand God's sovereignty, it is a powerful gift that you cling to, not something you're afraid of. Listen how Paul said it in Romans 8. And we know that for those who love God, all things hold together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, I did a little bit of research here, and that word all in Greek means all. All things hold together. Not some things. It's not like God is semi-powerful. He's all-powerful. For those who love God, all things hold together. In light of eternity, it's all going to work out. They understood this. No matter what was going to happen to Peter or John, they understood that they had an assurance in God that was more powerful than anything that could happen in this world. Number two, they reminded God of his promises by quoting scripture. Did you know that there are over 3,000 promises in the scriptures waiting for you to lay hold of? Think about that. This is why it's so important to know your Bible. When you know your Bible, you know the promises that God has given to you and you cling to them. And I'm not talking about like, I can do all things to a passage of scripture that's taken out of context. I'm talking about scripture like they held on to, stuff that they quoted, like God, you spoke through the prophets. That means you spoke in the Old Testament and you spoke by the Holy Spirit. And what does he say? All scripture is God breathed. All scripture is profitable. Listen to what he says. Why did the Gentiles rage? Why did the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. You see what they're doing? They're quoting Psalm chapter two. Here's what they're saying. They're quoting you, or they're attacking your church and it's all in vain. You see what they're doing? They're recounting. God, you're gonna win. The battle is over. And by the way, they aren't really just attacking me. Here's the truth. They're attacking you, Jesus, your anointed one. And not only are they attacking you, they're gonna lose those two truths. Those two truths are what you have to hold on to if you're going to live the Christian life. Listen, God is going to win. When he comes back one day, he is coming back on a white horse to do war with evil. And some of you need that Jesus. 
Like some of your Jesus is, some of you guys, you have this like really gentle, kind, like very, very, very easygoing Jesus. And he exists. He was a lamb of God, but he's also the lion of Judah. And you need to know that he is powerful and he's mighty and he's going to come and he's going to destroy the evil of this world. He's both. And they understood that. He will make all the sad things become untrue. He will wipe away every tear from your eyes. I'm telling you, when you understand this, you don't need to fight your battles. You can just let him fight them for you. And by the way, don't take it personally. Listen to it. They're not after you. They're after him. Side note, if you never feel attacked, maybe you're doing something wrong. Maybe you're not a threat. But if you are living this Christian life, they're going to attack you, but don't take it personally. They're actually attacking him, and he's going to win. So just keep going. Number three, they prayed for boldness. Notice this. Notice verse 27. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. By the way, that's everybody. This is what he's saying. Hey, listen, that, that about sums it up. Who was against Jesus? The authorities, Pilate and Herod. That, that's the Roman authorities. The Gentiles, that's all the non-believers. Oh, and by the way, the people of Israel, that's, that's just about everybody. To do whatever, listen, here's the sovereignty, whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servant safety, security, health, wealth, privilege. No, he didn't ask for any of those things. What does he ask for? Boldness. Boldness for what? To keep speaking your word. That's crazy. You know, they don't ask for relief from their circumstances. They ask for boldness despite their circumstances. Y'all, that's a wild and a powerful prayer because here's the truth that they knew. You ready? Write it down. If God is sovereign, then their suffering had purpose. Listen, you might not understand why you are going through what you are going through, but I'm telling you that there's a peace and understanding that God does, and he's all good, and he's beautiful, and he's powerful. It's like this. I've told you this before. My four-year-old, or I guess he's six now, does not understand the decisions that I make. He never will have the ability to comprehend them, and it's a futile effort for me to try to explain to him. All I can say is, buddy, I love you, and based on my character and what I've done, I need you to trust me. Some of you need to be able to sit there with the Lord and say, I don't get it. I really don't know, but I do trust you. Because here's the reality. Sometimes some of the things that happen in this world just happen because the world is broken. And that's really awful. Sometimes they happen, and we don't like to talk about this, but because God purposed them to happen. And sometimes they happen because you're an idiot. All three of those are true. You know, you're laughing, but it's true. Some of you think, man, the devil's attacking me. Good news, he is. Bad news, you're the devil. Like you attack yourself. What they knew is that the church always spread through opposition. 
give you a little history lesson. When the church and the state get married, you know what you get? The state. Every single time throughout human history that the church and the state come together, the church gets weak and does nothing. That's what happens in cultural Christianity. When the church and the state are opposed to one another, go back and look at it every single time. The church is able to speak powerfully back into culture, love well, and change the world. Some of you are wondering why culture in the the state, if you will, culture in the church are fighting and you're like, God, we're being persecuted. And God's like, no, you're not. You're actually being set up to change the world. What I'm trying to do is create the dividing line so that people can see who's clearly in and clearly out because when they know who's clearly in, you can actually love really well. So get off of social media and stop acting like that and start loving people well. Go and look at every single dividing line in the book of Acts. Here's what you'll see. The church was persecuted thousands of people came to faith. Every single time. The church was persecuted, thousands of people come to faith. Happens at Pentecost, happens at Stephen's stoning, happens all the time. As the church is persecuted, they rise up and they love well and thousands of people come to faith. That's the game plan, y'all. So they prayed, God, give us more boldness so that we can preach the gospel. Let me just ask you, when was the last time you prayed a prayer like this? Because that's not a safe prayer. That's a dangerous prayer, but let me just tell you, I don't think safety is doing what you're doing. I think safety is being with Jesus. In the middle of the storm, being with the one who controls the winds and the waves. Here's number four. They prayed that God would continue to do miracles. Verse 30, when you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. But they didn't just pray for miracles for miracles' sake. They prayed that God would speak powerfully in the name of Jesus because they wanted God to validate their message with supernatural power. By the way, that's what a miracle is. If you didn't know that, here all a miracle is simply is when the unexplainable meets the undeniable. I don't know how that happened, but you obviously can't deny it. That's what they tell the blind guy in the book of Acts. Hey, dude, but blind guy's like, how did you get healed? Are the Pharisees asked the blind guy's parents, how'd you get healed? He's like, I don't know. All I know is yesterday he couldn't see and today he can. It's the unexplainable meets the undeniable. And by the way, you guys think miracles are supernatural. Let me just tell you, I don't think that's the case. I think miracles are when the natural breaks into the unnatural. You hear what I'm saying? The world you live in right now is the unnatural. It's not the natural world. The natural world is one without sin and death. What's happened is sin has corrupted our natural world and God is breaking back into it the way that it was supposed to be. There's going to be a day when it's going to be normal for all the beautiful things that you will experience, you will experience. But let me just ask you, when was the last time you prayed like this? When was the last time you recognized God's sovereignty and submitted to it? When was the last time you recalled the scriptures back to God and laid claim of them? When was the last time you prayed boldness to continue to follow Jesus in your circumstances? And when was the last time you prayed that God would make himself known through the miraculous? When you pray prayers like that, watch what happens. Verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now there's something significant going on here. 
Every single time in the Old Testament when God showed up, the world was shaken. Earthquakes would happen. Now, and normally they would be terrified. But they're not here. Instead of being terrified, they worship and they're filled with boldness. Why? Well, actually, if you go back and you look at Jesus in Matthew chapter 27, when he was crucified, and you look at the language, the earth shook. When he rose from the dead, there was another earthquake. What it's showing you is that Jesus has absorbed the earthquake of God's wrath so that you can receive the earthquake of his power through the filling of his spirit. Watch, you're going to see it. And it's absolutely incredible. God answered their prayer by pouring out his spirit on them so that they could continue to preach the gospel. So let me again just ask you, when was the last time you prayed that God would pour out his spirit on you? You know, I stopped praying prayers over my kids of of all these different things, and I only pray for God to pour out his spirit on my kids. If you ask my kids, they'll tell you that's all I pray for. Why? Because if God pours out his spirit on them, they will become like Jesus. They will be filled with power to proclaim the gospel everywhere, and they will exhibit and exude the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. By the way, I don't need my kids to be more loving. I need them to be more Spirit-filled. And that's what I pray for you. I want to have a Spirit-filled church that loves the gospel. Now, let's do a little theology, because when I say that, some of you get a bad picture of what that looks like based on experience. In the Bible, when you become a Christ follower, you are filled or baptized with the Spirit of God. 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anybody is in Christ, he is a new creation, meaning you are indwelled with the power of the Spirit. He's a new creation. Behold, the old is gone and the new has come. When you become a Christ follower, you are baptized with the Holy Spirit. You have God's Spirit. However, there are moments in the scriptures where God intensifies your experience with the Spirit by filling you with it. So there's one baptism, but there's many fillings of the Spirit. See, what you have to understand is that there is not some kind of varsity level second baptism of the Spirit that some people get and others don't. No, you have full access to God's Spirit living inside of you, and yet there are moments in time in which the Bible, go back and read the book of Acts, will tell you that God will give you more of His Spirit so that you can proclaim the gospel, live out the gospel, and do some incredible things with the gospel. Y'all, we need to be a spirit-filled church that teaches the power of God's spirit, and you'll see amazing things happen when you understand that God is ready for you to fan into flame this thing that he's already given you. Don't miss this. Their vertical prayers with God had a horizontal impact on the way that they lived together. Watch this. Let me say it another way. When God's people are filled with God's spirit, they fulfill the great commandment to love the Lord, that's proclaiming the gospel, and to love one another. That's why Tim Keller famously said that Christians need the gospel just as much as non-Christians do. Check out what happens next. Absolutely incredible. Now, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Just stop there. How amazing is that? They're unified. And I've told you this before. Unity and uniformity are not the same thing. God does not call you to sameness. He calls you to oneness. Vastly different. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And great power 
And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Write this down. Write it down. Great power in the word and great grace with each other. That's what the Spirit of God does. You want to know if you're a Spirit-filled person? Here it is. You're unified with one another, and you speak the gospel. I'm telling you, the mark of a church that changes the world is when God's people speak God's word with boldness and conviction, and they love one another radically and give extreme grace to each other. Acts chapter 2, thousands of people come to faith. What ends up happening? They live together. They sacrifice their stuff. No one in the church has any needs. Acts chapter 4, they experience the supernatural uh, power of God's spirit. They proclaim the gospel. They live together, and no one has needs. When you get this, here's what happens. You get the gospel, you shift from an ownership mentality to a manager mentality. We call this stewardship. Stewardship. If you get the gospel, I'm saying if you don't get the gospel, you will believe the lie that everything you have is because you earned it and it's yours to be enjoyed. When you get the gospel, you will believe the truth that everything you have is a gift from God in order to be used to build up his kingdom. You're a steward of great grace. Y'all, most people are not changed by your great intellect and your oratory skills. Nobody cares that you know big words like soteriology and Christology and, and salvation and blah, 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 blah. What they are changed by is your changed life. They are changed by your radical generosity. They're changed by the power of your testimony. Let me tell you something they cannot refute. Y'all, when I was a kid, I grew up in an abusive home with a mom who was addicted to drugs and a dad who was just terrible. Half of my siblings are now drug addicts and they're in and out of jail and they're not doing well. And I don't know why I am where I am other than the fact that I met Jesus at the age of 16, he radically changed my life. You can argue with me all day long about the scriptures and what you don't believe about them, but here's what you can't argue with is that I was this and now I am a totally different human being. And my life is completely joyful and peaceful and I try to be kind because I am filled with God's grace. And I'm telling you, my family is different. And if you look at Ancestry.com, one day there's gonna be a branch that is broken off of the tree and it's gonna be beautiful and, and you're going to see a totally different reality. And one day, my great, great, great grandkids are going to be like, hey, it was that guy. And it wasn't because of him. It was because of Jesus. Let me just tell you, I'm not who I used to be. And it's not because of anything I did. It's because of what Jesus did. Try to refute that. What we need is we need people filled with God's spirit that embody the gospel and live out radically generous lives because they're stewards of God's grace. See, it was the gospel that unified them. And it was their unity around the gospel that made them live in generous community. Do you get that God gave you everything? He gave you everything, everything, everything. And he will continue to take care of all your needs. If you get that, then why not leverage everything you have to build up his kingdom? Like where you're caring for one another, where you're selling your abundance, and I mean that abundance, I'm not telling you to sell what you need to take care of your family, but you're selling your abundance to take care of one another. You want me to tell you the cold hard truth? The government does all their socialistic stuff to take care of people because we're not.
If there was nobody in need in this world because the church did it, you wouldn't need the government to take care of people. Statistically speaking, if Bible-believing Christians in America simply tithed, that's 10%, listen to what they say would happen. You ready for this? If Americans simply tithed, you could get rid of all world hunger. You could create clean water. You could stop any preventable disease, end illiteracy, and fund every single missionary in the world. And according to the National Christian Foundation, there would still be $100 billion left over. Here's what I know. A church like that would turn the world upside down. Maybe our message isn't potent because our lives don't match our message. People would be coming to faith in droves if the church was filled with this kind of power. That's how the early church did it. They didn't have some evangelistic strategy. What they did is they radically loved one another well. They prayed bold prayers and they were selfless with their stuff and they were unified around the gospel. We've got to grow into this, y'all. That's what, here's one of our plumb lines. Healthy things grow and healthy things change. If we're growing in Christ, what would it look like if you took this step today? Maybe today was the day that you stopped tipping to God and you started tithing. Maybe, maybe what would happen is if you experienced the freedom of walking with Jesus, you would understand that it would release you from the bondage of stuff. And you would just say, God, it's all yours anyway. And I want to do, because you've made me the wealthiest people in human history, I want to leverage it to build your kingdom. Maybe today is the day that some of you need to start changing the way you pray. And instead of asking God to deliver you from your circumstances, ask God to meet you in your circumstances and to make you bold through a testimony of your circumstances to tell people who are hurting about the, about the power and the love that you found in Jesus. You know what I know? I know every single one of you in this room are carrying a weight of something that we know nothing about. Whether it be some of you just had a, had a parent that died. Others of you are dealing with cancer diagnosis. Some of you are dealing with a wayward child. You know what else I know? Some of you have already gone through those situations and you could come alongside of the other person and be like, listen, here's what I experienced and here's what God's going to do through you. If you just would allow God to use you in one another's lives, that's what we need collectively to do this thing together. You know what would happen? You become more like Jesus and he'd change you. Look at verse 34. There was not a needy person among them. For as many who were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means the son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field belonging to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now just side note, if you're a Bible nerd, you would note that Levites weren't allowed to own property based on their heritage. However, his property, because he grew up in Cyprus, wasn't in Jerusalem. So it wasn't in the Holy Land. So you can take that. He took the excess or the abundance of his stuff and he gave it to the church. And what we know about Barnabas is he was known as the son of encouragement. Why? Because he was constantly building people up. Well, Deuteronomy 15.4 said that in God's church or his people, there shouldn't be any poor among you. What you're starting to see is the gospel being fulfilled through radical generosity. They're being fulfilled as their gratitude for the gospel changes them. And here's what I know. 
Gratitude is the attitude that fuels generosity. When you understand that God has given you enough, you become a steward of God's gifts. You don't hoard them. You invest them back to his kingdom. Like seeds that go into the ground, the gospel people who live gospel lives continue to spread the gospel. Here's the deal. When our message and our lives don't match up, we lose power. But when the message of the gospel and the way that we live matches, we glorify God and amazing things start to happen. Their great treasure was in Jesus, not in their stuff. And that gave them the boldness to be generous. And it's only when you are secure in Jesus and you understand that he will provide everything that you need that you'll be generous with the people around you. See, the gospel does two things to all believers. Number one, the gospel knits you to Jesus and to one another. And number two, the gospel loosens you from your relationship with money and things. It simultaneously draws you into Jesus and it loosens you from the things of this world. That's what the power of the gospel does. And isn't it true that when you're freed from your stuff and you experience that kind of life, there's nothing more freeing than that? That's why I love this language. Look at it. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. That doesn't come naturally. That's supernatural. That's hard. That's hard work. And yet, how freeing is it to know that you are completely safe and secure in community? That you can just be you. By the way, that word hypocrite literally means to wear a mask. You can take the hypocrisy off and just be you because you're safe where you are. Because of their love for the gospel, they genuinely started loving one another. And that's why they said nothing that they had was theirs. There is something about deep, relational community that allows you to relinquish your rights to your stuff. It's like this. Imagine, imagine if I walked up to my kids and I was like, listen, this ain't your house. My name's on the mortgage. I pay the bills. It's my house and you're just living in it. Now my kids would be like, no, that ain't your house. That's the bank's house. But that's a whole other story. I don't do that. Why don't I do that? Because it is their house. They're family. And it doesn't really matter whose name's on the mortgage or who pays the bills. They have every right to my stuff that I do. That's what gospel-centric family looks like. And that's powerful stuff. It's absolutely powerful. Here's what I know. The kind of radical living where word and deed are met at the cross is the kind of beautiful expression of the gospel that changes the world. And when we live like this, we put the light back in the church. Let me land the plane by telling you how any of this is possible. Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also give us all things? 1 Corinthians 8.9. I say this not as a command, but to prove by earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. Jesus was generous to you. See, the way you live is a direct reflection of what you believe about the gospel. 
What the early church understood is that Jesus didn't come in domination. He emptied himself. He died and he sacrificed everything to save them. That, that, that fundamentally changed the way that they, that they experienced the church and the way they experienced life. It did something to them. It gave them grace. Like the old hymn says, grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that pardons and cleanses within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Greater than all our sin. Jesus did it. God gave. He gave. He gave. He gave his one and only son so that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life. He stepped off of his throne. He lived your perfect life. He died your death in your place. He rose from the dead to defeat death, to make you new. And it was his radical generosity that allows you to experience the greatest gift ever. And I'm telling you, when you taste the fullness of being loved like this, it gives you meaning and purpose. It changes everything. See, when you believe that Jesus didn't just die, but he died for you to save you, you won't care about anything that happens in this world or what anybody throws at you. You will overcome it because you are secure in him. Listen, when Jesus is your greatest possession, nothing else matters. And when you live like that, you put the light back on in the church. City Church, what if that was us? What if today you decided to submit to anything he had, to say, this is mine, and I want to give it to you? Here's how I want to end today. I want you to stand with me, and I want to pray for you. Now, I want to ask you in boldness to just put out your hands. And as I pray, I want to ask you to make your prayer that God, whatever is waiting down your life in your hands, that you are symbolically putting at his altar and that you ask him to fill your empty hands with his spirit. Father, we all come with stuff. We come holding on to things, things that weigh us down, Troubles, fear, life's circumstances that are real. And we lay them at your feet now. We don't know what you're going to do with it, but we trust you. We trust that you're good, you're kind. And I pray that whatever needs to be filled in these hands, like Paul said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, insults, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Father, would you empty us, make us weak, and then fill us up with the power of your spirit? I want to pray that bold prayer over my friends and my family. Would you pour out your spirit on us now to do far more abundantly anything that we could ever ask or imagine? In the name of Jesus, amen.